Welcome everybody to this week's edition of Unleashed, where we're bringing world-class thought leaders live to you every Thursday. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I'm the CEO of Results. And if you're kind of wondering who Results is, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're an organization that was created to help make it easier for companies to grow. We all know how challenging that is. We work alongside business leaders to create high-performing teams and winning cultures. And I want to thank everyone who's joining us today. Uh, this uh, this uh, weekly series is really for anyone that has a growth mindset. It's also for my sweet grandmother who turns 89 tomorrow. She watches every episode on YouTube with her husband, Bill, and she continues to demonstrate a lifelong learning mindset. Certainly a good example for uh, for our entire family. So happy birthday, Grandma, tomorrow. Love you and see you, uh, see you very soon. And as a small token of our appreciation, we're actually going to be giving away some copies of Brad Stolberg's latest book, The Passion Paradox. I have a copy right here. It's a great book, great read, filled with valuable insights. All you need to do to have a chance to win that book is fill out the feedback form at the end of the show. Uh, so when the show is over, when you click the leave meeting button, then click the continue button, and that will direct you to the feedback page, which also includes some other special offers. Now, if you're also a leader who is looking to very intentionally further your own development and learning, we are offering a four-part series called the Leader's Toolkit. Now, this training series is limited to 12 people. It's very immersive. Uh, it's four two-hour sessions, very interactive, and I'll have more information on that at the end of the show and also an opportunity for anybody that uh, shows up for this episode to receive some preferred pricing for that four-part training series. And if you like what you see today, the biggest thing that you can do to help us grow is just help us build community. Spread the message, post your comments on social media, anything you learn, questions that you have, what your experiences have been like watching the episodes, and you can use the hashtag results unleashed. And thank you very much for everybody who's been doing that for us so far. And be sure to get your questions in for Brad Stolberg. You can put them into the Q&A box that's at the bottom of your screen, which is different than the chat box, so just keep that in mind. And if you have other comments or other feedback to share, you can email us anytime at info at unleashresults.com. We'll get back to you right away. And as a very uh, quick special sneak peek to next week's episode, we're going to be joined by three-time Super Bowl champion Michael Lombardi, where he's gonna share what he's learned from some of the all-time greatest athletes and coaches, which includes Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, Bill Walsh, Bill Walsh, and Joe Montana. And the topic of the episode is gonna be winning by seeing what others missed. And it should be a fascinating conversation with Michael. Now on to the main event, today's show. I am delighted to be joined by special guest, Brad Stolberg. Now, Brad is quickly becoming one of the foremost respected voices in the areas of peak performance and well-being. And I personally came across Brad, I'm going to say about two years ago on Twitter, and I just kept seeing his name pop up. And every time he posted some content, it always made so much sense to me. And it was always so helpful. And it seemed to be uh, timely in a very uncanny way. So over the years, we've had several conversations and we were actually planning on bringing Brad to Canada prior to the pandemic. So today is the next best thing to having him live in person uh, in Canada with us. Now, Brad is a coach, author, speaker and researcher whose work explores the principles of health, well-being and mastery that transcend capabilities and domains. And he's learned that whether someone is trying to qualify for the Olympics, break ground in mathematical theory launch a business, craft a creative masterpiece, or simply raise a family, many of the practices underlying sustainable success and well-being are the same, supported by scientific evidence and available to everyone. No hacks, no secrets, no gimmicks uh, in this episode. I can guarantee you that. He regularly writes about these topics in his popular column, Do It Better, in Outside Magazine, as well as essays and articles for other leading outlets, such as the New York Times, Wired, New York Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and more. And Brad has co-authored two books, The Passion Paradox, which we're giving away today, and Peak Performance. And he also hosts a terrific podcast called The Growth Equation. Strongly encourage you to check that podcast out. I listened to his latest episode this morning on the way into the studio. In his coaching practice, he intimately partners with clients to apply principles about which he writes, and his coaching informs his writing, his writing informs his coaching. 
He has undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of Michigan and currently resides in Oakland, California with his wife and son. He's an avid ex exerciser and outdoor enthusiast who does his best thinking in the gym or on the trail. And I always describe Brad uh, in terms of what he does and what his approach is being simple, powerful, and very difficult. And we're going to explore what I mean today. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be here and um, happy birthday, Grandma. Um, <laughs> I hope to be tuning into this kind of thing when I'm at your age too. Yeah, me too. Me too. So Brad, we have a lot of ground to cover today. And I want to, again, thank you for your investment of time today. I know we've got a, a, an eager audience uh, to get at some questions as well. But I thought where we'd start off is, is how did you get to this place in your career? Like, how did you end up on the peak performance path? And why is why is that sort of become a, a, a big um, a, a sort of a big passion and focus for you? I think it's from trying to figure out my own personal failures, uh, to be quite honest. So I, I've always been interested in elite performance, health, and well-being. Really, from the time I was in middle school, I played on the travel baseball team, captain of the varsity football team. Um, definitely didn't have the talent, but had the drive to be great. Uh, so it's something that I've been interested in really since I was a, a kid. And I also really tried to push myself academically. And coming out of school, I had some pretty great jobs. And I performed really well for a very short period of time. And then I burnt out. Um, and I noticed that that was something that was happening to a lot of people, not just myself. Yet there were also individuals who were able to perform at a really high level and get the most out of themselves um, without burning out or at the very least with, um, with the awareness of when they were starting to burn out so that they could course correct. So I became fascinated by what separates those individuals from the people um, that do suffer burnout and that kind of work themselves into the ground or dig themselves into a hole. So I just was following my interest to be totally honest and trying to figure this stuff out for myself. Um, something, something that I I take a lot of pride in about my writing is that I very, very, very rarely, if ever, will write about something because I have it figured out. I write about something to figure it out. Um, and, and I think that that holds true certainly for, for at least the beginning of my journey into thinking about what it means to be a peak performer and how to do it. Yeah, excellent. And, and our entire community is filled with leaders and individuals that are on that same path. They're trying to figure out how do they add value to the world? How do they show up uh, at their best more often? And I, and I think this underlying theme around fulfillment as well uh, amidst uh, chaos oftentimes as well. And now is a great opportunity to talk about some of those things. So Brad, one of the, one of the uh, items that you talk a lot about is this, what you call the growth equation. Okay, maybe let's start there. So what is the growth equation? How did you come up with it? And can you give some examples of how we can apply that into everyday life. For sure. So the growth equation, I'd say, is um, if I have one principle that I write about that I am pretty confident applies almost universally to just about everyone, everything, and every organization, it would be the growth equation. And the growth equation states that stress plus rest equals growth. Uh, very simple. So stress not necessarily or not at all the kind of stress that you might be feeling if you are anxious before a performance review with your boss or if you are um, struggling in a fight with your romantic partner uh, or if you have a loved one in the hospital. That's a very different kind of stress. Uh, I use stress and in the equation stress is used much more in a biological or physiological sense. So stress being defined is some kind of stimulus that challenges you or if we're talking about organizations, a stimulus that challenges your organization. And then rest is stepping back, following stress, to physically, psychologically, emotionally, give yourself some time and space to recover, um, and as well as reflect what went well, what didn't go well. And then the outcome is growth. So the simplest way to describe it is at the gym. So if you wanna make a muscle bigger, you have to follow this pattern. You pick up a weight and you stress the muscle. 
And if you pick up way too heavy of a weight, way too much stress, what ends up happening is you injure yourself. Either physically you throw out your back or emotionally you just quit. You, you lose motivation. You can never do it. Um, the flip side is if you pick up hardly any weight at all, you could sit there and lift the weight for hours and hours and hours day after day and nothing would happen because it's not enough stress. So you have to find the right amount of weight, the right dose of stress. And then if you follow that stress with rest, that's how your muscle grows. Even if you have the perfect weight and all you do is lift it, well, if you never rest, your muscle's not going to grow. You're going to burn out. So in exercise science, this is called progressive overload. And it's, it's a very, very old theory. What's fascinating is that if you look at how our psychology evolves and how creative thinking happens and how organizations grow, it's very, very much the same pattern. So my guess is multiple people tuning in today um, have had the experience of being really stuck on some kind of thorny problem and not able to figure it out. And they're working really, really hard and figuring it out. And then they step away and they have this aha moment. They figure it out. Maybe it's in the shower. Maybe it's while they're on a walk. Maybe it's when they're reading a book. So that's an example of stress plus rest equals growth. In that case, the stress is you expose yourself to the problem. The rest is you step back, you switch, and then the growth is you have the creative idea. Um, and then the last example that I'll give is organizations. I know there are a lot of um, leaders on this, on this show and are tuning into this show. And if you look at an organization um, like a Blockbuster Video or an America Online that is out of existence right now, or at least not existing in the same form, they did not stress themselves in the direction of growth. When the environment changed, they just did what they always did. Whereas you look at an organization like Apple, they've completely stressed themselves in the direction of growth. Apple started out as a desktop computer company. Another great example is Disney World. Disney World was an in-person theme park. Now their greatest revenue source is Pixar Movie Studio. So they were constantly pushing themselves in the direction of growth in, 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 in those industries by expanding into new products and service lines. Um, now the flip side is true. There are also companies that will, sorry, Jeff, you broke up for a minute. There are also companies that will consistently stress themselves, but never take the time to rest and reflect. And those companies grow too fast and fizzle out. Um, so again, someone in the comment just said, makes sense. Stress plus rest equals growth. Um, you can apply it physically. You can apply it psychologically. You can even apply it to a relationship. If you think about the way that relationships, both friendships, both manager-employee relationships, and even romantic partnerships, the way that those grow is you tend to take on challenges together. Then you step back. You have some space in between. You reflect together. And then you get tighter and you get a stronger relationship. Right. Yeah. No, that does make sense. What does, what does good... What does good rest look like? So the simplest way to think about good rest is something that is a dramatic task switch from what you are doing. Okay. So if you are an athlete and you are training super, super hard, rest might be sitting on the couch and reading a book. If you are a researcher and you spend your days rigorously thinking and reading books, rest might be going to do a workout. So it is something that is very opposite of the area that you're challenging yourself in. Now, the one non-negotiable, regardless of what you're doing, whether you are an elite athlete, an executive of a company, or a creative artist, is sleep. Yeah. And everybody needs sleep, and sleep should be such a priority. It's something that I advise all my coaching clients is that we've got to stop thinking of sleep as something that we do at the expense of our job. So, oh, I could stay up later and do more work, or I could work, wake up earlier and do more work. And we have to start thinking of sleep as an integral part of our job. All the research shows that our, our minds are um, in our bodies. They don't grow during the day while we're doing the work. They actually grow while we're sleeping. Right. Yeah. So when I relate it to a workout, Brax, I think that's probably, as you suggest, that's, that's probably the easiest way for us to relate to this. Everybody needs a different level of rest, and it's and it's and it's yeah. a little easier in a gym context. So if I, I want to test out how many days do I have to go in between doing uh, shoulder presses, some people are going to need forty-eight hours. Some might need four or five days. Yep. And I'll be able to tell that by my strength level, and when I when I get back to the gym, what are some indicators? If you if you if you sort of have some examples or some thoughts on this, like how do we know when we've had enough 
rest and we can get back into it. I'm really glad that you asked that question, Jeff. And I think even before I go into rest, let me start with stress because the same yeah. thing's true of stress. In a yeah. gym, it's super easy to be like, oh, I'm going to go from the 20 pound weight up to the 25 pound weight. Yeah. Um, whereas out in the world, generally, like it's not so, it's not so straightforward. So here's an example um, that I like to give. Three things. Wait, I'm so sorry. There's like this terrible beeping noise. Let me go make sure that all the windows in my kitchen are shut. I don't know if you're hearing that. Give me like 10 seconds. It'll be okay. worth it. Okay, sounds good. No problem. And while we're uh, while we're waiting for Brad to go and uh, and close the windows, and I and I love that this is live like this. Uh, whether it's uh, construction uh, equipment outside or kids running through, make sure you check out Brad uh, on uh, on Twitter. He's got a fantastic Twitter account if you're active there. All right. There was some construction going on. I'm really sorry. Um, okay. So stress. So three things I like to think about. The, the first is this concept of a just manageable challenge. So something that is ever so slightly outside of your comfort zone. Another mental model to think of that is a seven out of 10. So if a one out of 10 is you're going through the motions, you could do it in your sleep. A seven out of 10 is something that you're not so sure if you can do. It kind of arouses you. A 10 out of 10 is you're waking up in the middle of the night having nightmares about the spreadsheet. You don't want that. That's anxiety. Um, you want to be somewhere in between. And then my favorite way to think about the right dose of stress, and I do this with my coaching clients, is just to step back and take a, just a couple minutes to reflect on a particular area of your life or of your business and say, where am I now? Where do I want to be? And what's the next logical step? In most people's assessment of the next logical step is spot on. I think that we just often don't take the time to really do that kind of reflection. And then that next logical step, that becomes the right dose of stress. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes that, that that's good advice, Brad. The other part that I need to layer onto this, I think, is, is current events is that we are overloaded with stress more more now than, than uh, we probably ever have been in our lifetimes. How do we give ourselves permission to take rest? And, and, and there's, I'll add a bit more context to this too, that I'll, most of the people that I talk to are, are working harder than they ever have before because mm -hmm. they want to rebuild their businesses and they're trying to restore jobs that were lost for colleagues that they care about and they're trying to get more done with less. How do we give ourselves permission to take that important rest time? So again, I think that it's a reframing of rest, not as something that you do separate from your job, not as something that is separate from being a good leader, but is part of being a good leader. Yeah. And I think that, again, it has to come back to there's all this evidence that shows, particularly sleep, there is such a strong correlation with performance and sleep and particularly with emotional control and decision-making in sleep. Yeah. And if you're a leader in a time of um, environmental change or, in, in, or the, the, the change in the industry around you or a pandemic, yeah. your ability to control your emotions and to make good decisions under distress is probably more important than ever. Now, I have to be careful when I talk about this equation because people will always say like, oh, you know, Brad's giving me permission to work out for two hours a day, to take a two-hour lunch. That's not the case. There are times when the stress level is really high and you've got to be all in for a period of time. And I think a lot of organizations and leaders are going through some version of that right now. I think the one thing that I would just really make such a strong plea for those that are listening to protect is sleep. And, you know, if you are sacrificing sleep on a regular basis to work, it's so hard to see this, but you are probably hurting yourself as a leader and your organization. And it's hard to see this because in the short term, your performance will get worse. Yeah. If you are working 18 hours a day and you go down to working 15 hours a day for a week or two, your performance is going to decline because you're working less. But for a month, a half a year, a year, a decade, you are going to be such a better leader. Yeah. And then shortly after sleep, I would put some sort of, um, of hobby or something that you enjoy, even just for 45 minutes to an hour a day. One that I like to talk about a lot is physical activity. It doesn't have to be like a killer CrossFit workout. It can just be a 45 minute walk outside. Yeah. Um, but those two things, and particularly sleep, is really important to, um, to protect. And then also to give yourself permission to go all in and dial up the stress 
for a period of time when it's called for and not to feel bad about doing so. Yeah, that well said. And, and there's, a, there's a couple of patterns I think that, that we're seeing with some of the thought leaders that we've been interacting with, Brad, in addition to you, and then some of the leaders that we're just in conversation with. And there's the two things that are really jumping out for us is in, in um, sort of the mess of all of the priorities that are falling on someone's shoulders is try to focus on the ones that are going to have the biggest impact. So that's been really helpful advice. And then the other one, I think it's incumbent upon leaders right now, whenever and wherever possible, like we have to create environments that make it safe for people to take care of themselves. And I'll, and I'll share a really simple example. I had a really full, busy day yesterday. I, I, had, I had a bunch of things I needed to get done. And I had a really bad sleep the night before. And so I just, at six in the morning, I gave myself permission to sleep for two and a half hours till 8.30. And I showed up to our management call uh, uh, later that morning. I just said, hey, look, sorry, but I had, I had to give myself permission to sleep because I needed it. And we have a very understanding environment and our work allows us to do some of that sometimes. But I think it's important for us as leaders to look for those opportunities to have understanding and compassion for our employees and create, create that kind of well-being and nurturing environment. And then the only other thing that I'll say while we're talking about sleep, and again, I'm seeing some sleep come through the, um, the chat, is... I've got two rules of sleep uh, for all of my coaching clients and, and particularly those with young kids. But the first rule of sleep is it's an absolute priority and you should do everything you can to get a good night's sleep, which I define as seven to nine hours. The second rule of sleep is if you don't get a good night's sleep, don't freak out about it. Yeah. Because freaking out about it never helps. It just makes it more likely that you're not going to sleep the next night because now you're worried that you didn't sleep. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important to hold those two things together. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Brad. I want to talk a little bit about your latest book now. So the passion paradox, love that book. And it suggests that following your passion may not be good advice after all. And I don't know if I've ever seen a valedictorian speech that didn't say, follow your passion. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> so, and, and you highlight in the book, you really highlight two kinds of passion. And I'd, I'd like to know sort of more about what's the difference between harmonious passion and obsessive passion. Mm. So I'm so glad that you're asking this question. I think this is, this is so relevant and timely in today's world. Um, it's a part, big part of the reason we, we wrote the book. But um, okay, so harmonious passion is when you are passionate about an activity because you love doing the activity itself. This is when you are passionate about leading because you love leading, you love the challenge, you love connecting with people, you love seeing the results of, um, of your efforts. It is when you are a writer and you love writing because when you sit down to write and you put the words on the page, you feel great. Um, you're an athlete that loves your sport because you just love pushing yourself and trying to master your body. You love the thing itself, that's harmonious passion. Obsessive passion is when you are passionate about an activity because you love the results and the external validation you get from doing it. So this is when you're a leader and you're passionate about being a leader because you love feeling really relevant or you like that you might be on the cover of, a, um, of an industry journal or a popular magazine. This is when you're an author that loves to write because you like having your name in the New York Times on the bestseller list. Or you're an athlete that loves to compete and loves your sport because you like having 100,000 Twitter followers. Um, one is focused on a love of the process. The other is focused on becoming attached to a result. What the research shows is that individuals that score high on harmonious passion tend to be better performers, suffer from less burnout, and report better physical health. Whereas those that score high on obsessive passion tend to suffer from increasing rates of burnout, anxiety, depression, and are 10 times more likely to engage in unethical behaviors. Two examples of harmonious passion that are worth calling out. One, because we were just talking offline about it, Jeff, is Lance Armstrong. So he's somebody that clearly was passionate about being the man, about winning. And when that went away, he did unethical things to sustain it. And another example of harmonious passion is Elizabeth Holmes, who is, um, was the CEO of Theranos, the huge biotech fraud. And in the two years before Theranos, the house of cards fell down, she was featured on the cover of over five magazines with the word passion. 
So again, it's this very, very nuanced thing. It's are you passionate about the activity itself or are you passionate about the external validation you get? And I've yet to meet somebody that is 100% harmonious passion. Yeah. We're human beings. We like success. We evolved in tribes where it actually matters that people like us and respect us. So the goal is not to be 100% harmonious, passionate, and not to care at all about your results or what people think. I mean, heck, your company is called results, and for good reason. Results matter. The thing is you have to try to keep yourself, the majority of your passion, the majority of your motivation should come from a love of the craft itself. Yeah. And that majority, it can even be 51%. You just don't want to get to a place where the reason that you're pushing ahead on something is for some sort of external validation. Because then what happens is if you don't get the external validation, you feel like crap. Yeah. And it's never enough. So what? Your book's a New York Times bestseller? Great. Well, then the next one has to be higher up on the list. Your company hits the Fortune 500? Great. Why isn't it in the Fortune 100? So you're just never happy that way. Yeah. Yeah, you're always chasing more. Now, Brad, my, my belief most of the time, and I'd be curious on your perspective on this, is things start out more as harmonious passion and things that you're interested in. And then it's, you start to get some notoriety and people start to pay attention and then it turns to obsessive. So how do you, how do we check ourselves to make sure that we're staying a little bit more, as you say, you know, 51% of the time, at least on the harmonious side of passion? Oh man, you're, you're dropping wisdom. That's such a great question. Cause it's so true. I'm so glad that we're getting to dig into the nuance of this. Um, so thank you. It's really hard. That's the first thing that I'll say. So your observation is spot on. No one goes in, very few people go into something because they want external validation. They want fame. When you're a kid, when you're a teenager, even when you're early in your career, you tend to do things because you like them and you follow your interests and then you become really passionate about them. And then, as you said, eventually you start to get some good results. And the question is, how do you not become so attached to those good results? How do you not crave them? Yeah. And my answer is, and this is after years of, of research and years of personal experience with this, that it's really, really, really hard not to eat candy if you're always in the candy store. And let me elaborate. So in this metaphor, candy is all that external validation. Yeah. Candy is Twitter followers. Candy is whatever dashboard you're looking at that tells you that you're a good leader or that your organization is doing great. Um, candy is reading the newspaper and seeing yourself or your company featured. If you spend a lot of time in the candy store, of course you're going to become addicted to candy and it's all you're going to want to eat. But here's the problem. If you eat a lot of candy, you end up feeling like crap. Mm -hmm. So the way out of it is to feel into what you get as a result. So playing this metaphor out. I think often, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my own skin in the game, I'm gonna talk about myself as a writer. I fall for this crap all the time. For me yeah. as a writer, the candy store, the external validation is how well did a story do on social media? How many copies of my book was sold? What are people saying about my work? And I can go down that rabbit hole for hours and on, on, in it when I'm not at my best for days. So the actual work itself, writing or speaking to groups, engaging in conversations like this, this is like brown rice. It's really nourishing. It makes me feel really good. Checking my Twitter notifications or looking at the copies of my book sold, those are like peanut M&Ms. It tastes great, but if I spend a whole day eating peanut M&Ms, I'm going to feel nauseous. Here's the problem. If you put brown rice in front of someone next to peanut M&Ms, they're always going to start eating the peanut M&Ms. It's just really hard to stop. So, it's two parts to get back to your question. The first is try to eliminate the peanut M&Ms around you. Yeah. So set some really good boundaries. For example, I have all social media off my phone. Um, now that's not to say, and I, I want to make sure we get into the nuance, that's not to say that that stuff doesn't matter. If you're a leader of a company, your dashboards freaking matter. That's how you've decided to measure progress. But there's a difference between checking your dashboards once a week because you're getting information from them versus checking them 10 times a day because you're on this emotional roller coaster of needing to see those good results in order to feel good about yourself. So the first thing is try to design your environment where you're not constantly surrounded by external validation by candy. Yeah. And then the second thing is when you fail, because you will, I fail all the time, really feel what it's like to fail. 
when I get sucked into the social media rabbit hole and I spend a day just looking at my retweets and thinking, look how great I am. Look how many likes I got. At the end of those days, I tend to feel like crap. Yeah. And the more of it I can be aware of that, the more likely I am the next time to start going down that rabbit hole that I can course correct and say, hey, I'm eating candy right now. It tastes great, but I know I'm going to feel like crap later. So I want to transition to doing the actual work itself. Yeah. So it's an ongoing practice. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great, Brad. And I, and I appreciate you sharing some of your own personal examples there. And I'm the same way. I mean, I, I, get, I get sucked into how many likes did this, did this tweet have? Uh, how many retweets? Who's interacting it? Do, do I have more followers today than I had a week ago at the same time? How many people do we have signed up for this episode? And it, it's a slippery slope. And you're right. Like those metrics matter because you want to know that you're resonating but you want to you be focused on the resonance for the right reasons. And, and it's never good enough. I think it's worth yeah. pointing out, like to really yeah. make this real, because we'll, we'll, use our, we'll use what we know about each other, but I'm, I bet everybody can, can make this real in their own lives. So earlier, when, when we were talking offline, you said, you know, when I started this webinar, I would have been thrilled just to get like 30, 40 people to join. And then you're like, it blew my mind that so many people joined. But now imagine if only 50 people and I'm looking, so there's over a hundred, it's great. But imagine if only 50 people were on today, you'd probably feel pretty bummed. But a couple months ago, you would have been thrilled. So again, the more we pay attention to that stuff, the more we get on this emotional roller coaster where it's just never enough. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, and, you know, some things, some things that have been helpful, I found uh, in navigating that I, I love, I love the comparing it to peanut M&Ms. That is awesome. Cause I love peanut M&Ms first of all. And then I only eat them on Fridays, but I think, but there know, you go. And that's how you should live your life. Yeah, for sure. So check your dashboard on Fridays, check your notification on Fridays and yeah. then eat brown rice the rest of the time. Yeah. And my guess is that if you had peanut M&Ms surrounding you in your office, you'd eat them a lot more often. Yeah. So it's identifying what are those triggers that kind of get you in the rabbit hole of this emotional roller coaster of external validation and how can you just literally remove them, replace them with brown rice? Yeah, absolutely. Some, some other things that I find helpful too is, is the, the notion of trading uh, perspective uh, or, or changing your perspective. So trading expectation for appreciation. I think that is helpful. Focusing on the people that you're trying to serve and help is another one. And then I find like if you're really focused on learning, the more you learn, the more you realize you have left to learn. And I find that that's incredibly humbling and, and uh, helps to keep me grounded. So that's good. Now, and Brad, no, I don't know if, if this is exactly the same thing. So uh, I'm going to ask it anyways. And if, and if we've covered it mostly, then let me know. But it, it feels like there's, there's enough difference here that I'm still going to go here. Is how, can we, how can we focus more on internal drive and motivation when there's all kinds of external measures of success? Like how do we really, really really hone in on, on the internal drivers that are sustained, the sustainable ones. So I think it's, it's, it is similar. And I think, again, my first thing that I'd say is, um, don't rely on willpower. So really think about like, are you in, are you in the candy store or not? And do what you can to design an environment that, that pushes you towards doing the actual work itself. Um, the second thing I'd say is just feel the difference. Like, feel how you feel after a day of doing the work itself versus a day of kind of being in external results land. And then the third thing that I'd say is super helpful is to spend some time reflecting on your core values. So what are the things that really guide you? Um, When you are your best version of yourself, what type of traits are you embodying? What are those qualities? So some examples can be caring, stewardship, authenticity, vulnerability, creativity, wisdom, intellect, you name it. Those are just examples. And then under each of those examples, think of a couple of very practical daily acts, daily practices that support that value. And check in with yourself, measure yourself. How much of your time are you spending on acts that support those core values versus not? Yeah. And remember that the core values, those, that's the brown rice. Like it is, I think it's, I sound like a broken record because it, I don't want people to judge themselves for eating peanut M&Ms. Like we're always going to prefer peanut M&Ms at first. So the problem isn't liking peanut M&Ms. The problem is when you spend all day eating them. Yeah. Um, so I think it comes back to just really reflecting on like, well, what is your personal brown rice? What's the stuff that nourishes you? How do you want to spend your life? And then when you fail, don't judge yourself. That just makes you feel worse. Just notice it. Be like, oh crap. Like here I am eating the peanut M&Ms again. 
it's fine. They taste good. I'm not going to beat myself up for it, but I know they're going to make me feel sick. So I'm going to get back to brown rice. And now I've got this menu or this guide of here are my core values. Here are the actions that support them. How can I start doing these things and shift away from the peanut M&Ms? Right. Man, who knew we'd spend so much time? I feel like this is free publicity for peanut M&Ms. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm brown rice. I'm like, who uh, you are, you're in cahoots with Uncle Ben there, aren't you, uh, Brad? Yeah, exactly. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, right on. So let, let's switch gears to leadership a bit now. And, and, and it's all interrelated, but I, I know that you have been doing a lot of work on what you call rooted leadership. And I, I'd like to explore a bit about what is rooted leadership and what are the principles that underlie it? Mm. So, yeah, this is, this is the project that is um, top of mind for me right now. I, I actually hope it becomes a big part of my next book. Um, so there's been, there's been a lot of research on resilience. And the way that I like to think about resilience and certainly the way that it's, it's thought about in like the management literature is it is the ability to bounce back when you get knocked down. I want to get a little bit upstream of that and start thinking about what are the things that prevent you from getting knocked down in the first place. So if you think about an enormous oak tree or an enormous redwood tree, when there's really, really crappy weather, that tree blows around, but it doesn't get knocked down. It's like has this really firm core and that core is held to the ground by roots. And I love this analogy because the roots aren't visible. When you see this beautiful big tree, you see the overstory, you see the branches, you see the trunk, but what's actually holding it to the ground when the weather is rough are these, these roots that you don't even see. So I always look to nature for inspiration. That got me thinking, well, what are our own personal roots? Like what's the stuff that holds us to the ground? It, just as human beings and, and specifically as leaders, so that when there's really rough weather, we might get blown around, but we don't fall over. So that sent me on this exploration of trying to identify, like, what are those roots? Um, so to do that, I, I looked to the, the most recent science. So fields like psychology, management, organizational behavior, cognitive science, um, even a little bit of philosophy. I looked to wisdom traditions. So what is Taoism? What is Buddhism? What do the old sects of Christianity and Judaism, like what do these wisdom traditions say about what it means to really be a strong individual? And then I also looked at what peak performers do. So what do individuals um, who are able to weather storms, like what, what are they doing to take care of themselves? Um, and I came up with six roots. So does it make sense to go into them a little bit right now? I think, I think what I'd say is men, mention what the six are, Brad, because I'd yeah. like the people that are, that are tuning in and, and watching the recording to be able to write those down. Yeah. They've got those at a bit, as a bit of a framework for further exploration, and then they can, they can interact with you on the various social platforms as well, and of course, buy the book when it comes out. Yeah. All right. So, so the six routes, um, the first route is acceptance, and the way that I think about acceptance is it starting where you are to get where you want to go? So, so often we delude ourselves, especially when we're in crappy situations and we kind of pretend that we're not really where we are. We don't take full stock of our reality. And it feels good in the moment not to take full stock of our reality, but it's just kicking the can down the road. So acceptance is constantly being able to see clearly where you are. You don't have to like it, but you have to accept it. Because otherwise you're kind of starting from this false point and you can never really move forward. The second route is presence. So it's the ability to really be where you are. So not to constantly be thinking ahead about what could happen in the future, not to constantly be looking back about all the things that did happen, second guessing, judging yourself, or feeling really good, but it's about being where you firmly are. The third route is patience. This ability to play the long game to zoom out and take perspective and remember that again, especially when the weather is rough, I go like this, this is my, um, my tree bobbing up and down. It's so easy to get caught in the acute moment and think that that acute moment is everything. And it's so hard to zoom out and remember that that acute moment, it feels like everything right now, but in the scheme of things, it's just a moment. So how do you make decisions that play the long game? How do you stay patient? The next route is vulnerability. So vulnerability to me means 
getting closer to saying what you really want to say. So you can't always say what you really want to say because you have to lead a group of people. So if what you're feeling is, oh shit, there's no way we're going to get out of this, you might not want to say that. But how can you get closer to saying what you're really feeling? So the less that you feel like you are performing as a leader, and the more you feel like you're saying what you really want to say, the better. So then the next word is community. So something that I learned about redwood trees, um, which, which like tower 200 feet above the ground, is that their root systems are actually only about 6 to 12 feet deep. So they've got these massive trees, but the roots are pretty shallow. But the way that the trees stand tall is all the roots overlap with each other. So they're literally held together by a community of roots. And then you look at what keeps strong individuals strong. It's not just their own personal characteristics. It's also the, the people around them. So that fifth root around community is about really taking the time to cultivate a strong community that can help you stand tall when the weather gets rough. And then the final route, um, which I, I kind of went back and forth on, do I throw this into the framework, but I, I do think it's important enough to throw in, is movement. So physical movement. So taking some time to, to move your body. And there's just so much overwhelming research that the number one life, oh, so, sorry, someone's saying, can you tell me what number five was? Number five is patience. And then, yeah, I'm sure, thank you, Nicole. Nicole's sending out a recap. So then that six root movement, why I went back and forth of this is because I had to check myself. Like, I love exercise. I love fitness. I didn't want to just include this because it's something that I like. But if you look at all of the literature, if exercise, if physical movement could be bottled up as a pill, it would be a gazillion dollar blockbuster. It is the only thing that we know outside of medication and therapy that can prevent and reverse mental illness. It is the only thing that we know out of illicit performance enhancing drugs that can increase focus and creativity, and it does it reliably in everyone. So again, movement does not mean you need to be a marathon runner or the star of your CrossFit gym. It doesn't mean you have to look a certain way. Movement just means that you use your body and you move it regularly because that helps you feel really rooted because our bodies were meant to move. Right. And, and I, I want to stress one more time because I know there's a lot of people on here and it's so important because they look at me and they see this person that looks like I'm fit. I look a lot fitter than I am. Don't worry. But movement can just be a 30-minute walk around your neighborhood. There's actually evidence to show that that's, that's like 99.999% of what you need. So this isn't about some elitist fitness thing. This is just about moving your body through space because the effect it has on your mind. Yeah, that's great. That's a great framework uh, and lots of, lots of work to dig into underneath uh, all six of those. Now, I, I want to talk about one of the things that I first started coming across uh, when, um, when I became aware of you that's been the most impactful is I have oftentimes caught myself sort of daydreaming about the future, about my ideal life, what I want to create for myself, for yeah, you and me both, all that stuff. Right. And, and so that, that tended to be a lot of where I would focus my, uh, I, I think my efforts and energy. And I came across something that you had said that the, 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 the path is the goal and the goal is the path basically. And it yeah. totally changed my perspective, Brad. And, and I think about that every single day and it grounds me on the, on, on the way to really seek a fulfilling, meaningful life. Can you tell us what that is all about? Mm -hmm. So the goal is the path and the path is the goal. It is probably the best sentence that I'll ever write. So I'm young and like my best sentence is behind me. I, I joke, but people just love that. Um, and what I mean by that is, and this kind of gets back to, to so much of what we've been talking about, whether it's rooted, whether it's stress plus rest equals growth, whether it's harmonious versus obsessive passion. Um, and I'll pause because I'm really, I, you've conducted this interview, you've crushed it. Like, I think that for those listening, those are the three things to walk away with. Stress plus rest equals growth. How can you apply it personally, professionally, organizationally? Harmonious versus obsessive passion. Where do you stand? And what actions can you take to try to keep the majority of your drive harmonious? And then this notion of being rooted and how can you apply those six principles? Okay, so this goal is the path and path is the goal. That basically says that the goal is just to abide by those principles. 
Like that is the path. That's the path of mastery. That's the path of being a peak performer. And the goal is just to stay on that path. It's not to win. It's not necessarily to get promoted. It's not to IPO. It is simply to keep applying those principles day in and day out. And if you do that, you will feel good about yourself and you will end up having the most conventional long-term success anyways. It's like the people that are shooting for conventional long-term success tend to struggle more than the people that are just so meticulously focused on staying on the path. And it's really hard to stay on the path. Again, this is not to say that you should judge yourself when you spend a day, week, month, even have a bad year, just getting so caught up. And am I enough? How come, how come I'm not at the C-suite yet? How come my company hasn't been bought yet? That's fine. Like you're a human. That's a part of falling off the path. Then the goal is simply just to get back on it. So to really stick to these principles of following the process, doing the work that you love, trying to contribute in a meaningful way. And then when you find yourself getting caught up in external validation, just recognizing it, not beating yourself up, and then doing what you can to nudge yourself back on the path. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's excellent. And, and, and what it's meant for me is just focus more on the purposeful, intentional work the daily ins and out of the thing that you actually derive some joy and some satisfaction from that serves others and, and, uh, and, and the pursuit of growth, personal growth and learning. And uh, for sure. And there's, and, and there's fascinating research. I know it'll be, it'll probably be relevant for this crowd is we often hear burnout and we just think that burnout results from working too many hours. And that can certainly be a part of burnout, but burnout is every bit as much about the type of work that you're doing in the why behind it versus the hours. So there's research that shows that individuals that are super focused on the external stuff tend to burn out at a much higher rate than people that do the work itself. If you like the work, very, very rarely are you going to burn out. People that like the work and stay focused on the actual work, you can work 12 to 14 hour days if you love it. Think about artists, craftspeople, athletes that train their butts off. It's when you start spending so much time in that anxiety loop about how am I doing compared to others? Why aren't I there yet? That's when feelings of burnout start to creep up. Yeah. Yeah. Brad, I want to ask you about a hybrid entrepreneur. One of the things that struck me in the passion paradox was this notion that a hybrid entrepreneur exists, but they have, they experience 33% less business failure. So could you describe for us quickly what a hybrid entrepreneur is? Mm -hmm. So a hybrid entrepreneur is somebody that has an entrepreneurial idea, but decides that instead of going all in on their idea, they're going to keep their day job and pursue that entrepreneurship idea as a side hustle at first. And the research speculates that the reason they are more successful is because when you go all in, you not only put a lot of pressure on yourself, but you often have to sacrifice what you really want to do. So if I would have quit my day job after my first article got published, I would have had to write all kinds of clickbait articles that I didn't want to write simply to pay rent and to make money. But because I kept my day job, it allowed me to be more selective and take bigger risks in my entrepreneurial endeavor because I had this cushion. So it's the notion of keeping the safe thing for longer than you think while pursuing the risky thing on the side. And then once the risky thing feels not so risky, that's when you make the jump and go all in. Um, I first read about this, the, it's in a book on my bookshelf. It's what's neat about being at home right here. Um, in a book called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. And he talks about the, the best rock stars are also accountants. Because what allows them to take these crazy risks to be like these provocative rock stars is that they have this safe accounting job. So they're not scared of failing. Yeah. See, and, and that's where the science and the research is important, Brad, because I feel like the, I feel like the popular advice is go all in. So you have nowhere left to turn and you're, you're going to come out swinging and you're going to be resilient and resourceful. And that's actually not what the research would say. So I love that. Uh, Warby Parker is another example too. the eyewear uh, um, a company that's disrupted that industry. And, and they didn't quit their day jobs until they knew they had something really um, uh, really taking a hold that they could comfortably leave what they were doing uh, 
in their in their regular careers. Yeah, it's this paradox, and it's worth driving home. Um, I see in the chat. It seems like the vast majority of people already get it. So sorry if I'm being redundant, but you can actually take greater risks when you keep your like keeping your day job allows you to take greater risks. Yeah. Going all in feels like a big risk, but then it pigeonholes you because you can't take greater risks because if you fail, then you're screwed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to ask another question about uh, having a bad day. And so, and this is a very self-serving question because everything that you talk about, it makes total sense. And when I'm in a good frame of mind and I've got good balance, as an example, I've got good rest, this stuff is, is really easy to do. And then I wake up and you know, you know what's breaking loose. I had a bad sleep. Some surprises have, have uh, popped up in my personal life and my business life. <clears throat> when we find ourselves in the eye of that storm, what advice do you have for us to just get ourselves out of that, out of that state as quickly as possible? Don't be hard on yourself. I was going to make a joke, but it's not worth joking. I was going to say, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and go. No, like the opposite of that. So the first thing is to be kind to yourself. And especially, the, this is a self-selecting audience of people that attend these webinars. Like the reason that you all are attending this is because you probably conceive of yourselves as high-performing pushers. And high-performing pushers, it's great to be wired that way. It's a fulfilling life. You contribute to the world. You experience great highs. The problem is we tend not to be so kind to ourselves. And when we have a bad day, that high-performing pushing attitude actually can get in the way because it leads to a lot of self-judgment. So, ugh, why am I feeling like crap? I can't be down. I'm angry. Like, ugh, Brad's tweeting all these things, but screw him. Like, none of it makes sense. I'm having a bad day. Um, just accepting that, like, that's part of being a human to have those bad days. Again, the research shows that the more harsh you are on yourself when you're having a bad day, the longer it takes you to get back on the bandwagon. Right. The more kind you are to yourself, the faster it is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I would say is there are two kinds of fatigue. There's one kind of fatigue when you're actually really tired. And when you're actually really tired and your body's telling you, you know, stay in bed all day, you should stay in bed. Maybe not all day, but that is your mind-body system telling you you need more rest. Yeah. Then there's another kind of fatigue where your brain is kind of tricking you into like, uh, everything sucks. You should stay in bed all day, but you're pretty well rested. You've been sleeping. Okay. Like, and it's hard to tease these two out, but that kind of fatigue, you actually want to meet with gentle resistance. Um, so a lot of people think that you need to feel really good to get going, but it's actually the opposite. That's true. You need to get going and then you feel good. Um, in, in, in the most extreme case, the most successful behavioral intervention for treating depression is something that's called behavioral activation. And what behavioral activation says is literally just start doing stuff. So if you think you need to feel all hunky-dory or you need to like start thinking positive or will yourself into a good mood, it's never going to work. Yeah. What does work is saying, oh, I feel like crap today. I feel really apathetic. I feel really sad. I feel really fatigued, but this is like the fake fatigue. This is my brain trying to trick me. So I'm going to force myself to just get started, just get going. Yeah. And then it doesn't always happen, but at least you give yourself the possibility that your mood follows suit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Um, and I think there's this myth out there that like, peak performers wake up and jump out of bed every day feeling great and like ready to rip. And that's a total myth. Yeah. Like I would say what separates sustainable peak performers is that they learn this, this mood follows action and they have just as many crappy days as the rest of us. They're just really good at being kind to themselves and then gently nudging themselves in the direction of action. Yeah. Yeah. There's a phrase I, I subscribe to that we have to go to the motivation. The motivation doesn't, doesn't come to us and love it. And it's important to reflect on those bad days when you go to the motivation and force yourself to do that. How do you feel afterwards? I think that's important reflection. So Brad, we don't have much time left to do this, but I didn't want to miss uh, this last piece, your, your latest podcast, The Growth Equation. Uh, you focused on this, this notion that the things that we love uh, sort of break our heart. Why, why did that become a topic? And can you just, do you have a couple minutes to describe what that means for you and why that became a topic? 
So it became a topic um, because I, I heard a poet named David White like three years ago um, give a talk. And he spent a lot of time talking about like what it really means to be vulnerable. And for him, what it really means to be vulnerable is just to care deeply about something. Because the more deeply you care about something, the more hurt you're going to be when it doesn't go your way or when it changes. And the nature of life is change. So if you really, really, really get, put your all into parenting, well, eventually your kid's going to move out of the house and that's going to suck. Um, your romantic partner might die before you. Like these are real things that happen. Less extreme, you might put your all into building this company and it might not work out or it might not work out the way that you wanted it to. So the easier way to go about living life is just to not really care deeply about things because you protect yourself. So often the reason that we don't care deeply is we protect ourselves. But really fully engaging in life is to care deeply. But when we do, we expose ourselves to all this hurt and heartbreak. And it gets back to those principles of rooted, particularly community. That's why it's so, so, so important that we have that strong foundation so that when the heartbreak happens, we can keep going. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a great way to end off, Brad. And I feel like in a lot of ways, we were just getting started today. But I, uh, talking about the things that we care about uh, deeply, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. And you're just getting started in your career. I, I'm so excited to see where, the, where, where that goes. And uh, you have such an impact on people. And, and myself, personally, I'm so grateful for the things that you're doing and, and for joining us today. And to the community and the audience that's tuning in week after week, whether this is uh, you've been on all nine episodes or this is your very first one, let us know how we're doing because we want to take care of you. And the best way for you to do that is to fill out the feedback form when you're done. And we are going to give away some copies of Brad's book. So if we didn't get to your questions or if you've got additional thoughts, you can email us at info at unleashedresults.com. Please fill out the feedback form. So when you leave here, click the leave button, then click on the continue button and that will take you to the feedback form. And we are offering a limited workshop. It's a four-part series called the Leaders Toolkit Workshop. And you can click the button on the feedback form for more information on that. And we do have a discount, a fairly sizable discount for the people that tune in to Unleashed on a weekly basis. And as a reminder, to join us next week when we're going to be joined by three-time Super Bowl champion Michael Lombardi. He spent time in the New England Patriots organization, won two Super Bowls there, worked with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, was an NFL general manager, and he's now got a really interesting uh, daily leadership newsletter called The Daily Coach that he partners with, with George Raveling, who is a uh, very interesting historical figure from the civil rights movement, who was actually on the stage when Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. So we're going to get into some really interesting perspectives on leadership next week with Michael Lombardi. Brad Stahlberg, what can I say? Thank you so much. Uh, maybe we'll do this again. There's so much to share and we'll get you up to Canada sooner than later uh, is, is my sincere hope. Yeah, I hope it'll be sometime within the next year. Um, but thank you so much for having me and thanks everyone for joining. And thank you, Jeff, and Results for, um, for just shining the light on all of these topics. I, I know your past guest and I'm looking ahead to Michael Lombardi and it's like, such great stuff that you all are doing. And I'm, I'm so glad that you included me in the series. Thank you very, very much, Brad. That uh, means a lot to hear you say that. And happy birthday, Grandma. Yes, absolutely. Happy birthday, Grandma. We'll see you later. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye, Brad. Be well, everyone. Bye.